working with actors is something totally different. You know, in boarding, it's like, oh, I'll just draw them over here. And then it's like, you got to give them a market. You got to give them a reason to go over there. And, and that actually has been really informative for me as a board artist, like to think about what would I tell the actor to get them to the moment the script is kind of calling for and to think more about like motivation than I just want to draw them over here because it's cooler. Hello, welcome everyone to Straight Ahead, an animation podcast where we spotlight rising black, indigenous, and people of color who are the future voices of the animation industry. I am Raymond Dozalanda, one half of your co-host. And I'm Yukio Komodo Wong, the other half of our whole host. Our guest this week is Juan Luis Bravo. He is a Mexican-American storyboard artist at Pure Imagination Studios. Would you mind telling us a bit more about yourself? Hey y'all, uh, I'm Juan Luis Bravo. Like you said, I'm a storyboard artist currently at Pure Imagination Studios. Um, originally from Sacramento, California, where I first discovered a love for animation. My life took a big detour and I got my degree, USC in live action film and TV production, where I meandered a little bit in my career, kind of bouncing between post-production sound, live action production, um, before ultimately coming back to animation about a year ago, working as a storyboard revisionist. Ooh, that's super awesome. That's crazy. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into like that whole journey. Mm. It's great to tell it in the past tense because <laughs> in the middle of it was just like <laughs> this constant anguish of what am I doing with my life. <laughs> Before we get into all that, a little bit more serious stuff. The way we like to start off on Straight Ahead is by playing a little game called In Between. We're going to give you two similar choices and then you have to choose in between the two of them and then let us know why. All right. Sweating. The pressure's on. <laughs> All right. I'll start us off with the first question. Okay. Would you rather go ghost like Danny Phantom or dragon up like American Dragon Jake Long? Dragon up. Got a dragon up. Oh. But I think I, oh. I, th- I think this, I think this is another case where unfortunately I'm just like not. I wasn't as familiar with Danny Phantom growing up. Wait, really? Like, no, oh. I like totally missed the wagon on that one. Even though I I, I loved Fairly Odd Parents growing up, but I just couldn't get into. I don't know what kept me from getting into. Was Danny it too Phantom. scary again? I think it might have been too <laughs> scary then too. Like because my family had really like traditional take on cartoons. Like we liked mm-hmm. Disney cartoons, you know. I yeah. was the one who started sneaking away and watching Nickelodeon in the room when, like, no one else was around. So it was like Nickelodeon, the devil? Was that, like, the devil channel? It was like, like <laughs> I'm not going to see the devil, but, like, the first time my brother found me watching Spongebob, he was like, what are you watching? This stuff is, like, so bad. It's so rude. And, and characters say bad words. And it's like, no, they really don't, actually. It's actually a really smart show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming Harry Potter wasn't also allowed in your household. It actually or was. was. That okay? Like, I, I, oh, I, wow. so okay. and I actually remember like making this argument in middle school social studies. Like, okay, so we have a problem with Harry Potter, which is so overtly Christian in its structure, but we got no yeah. problems with Lord of the Rings, where people are using magic to murder each other on the regular. Like, <laughs> there's, there's a certain like inconsistency in what was like banned in American schools and what wasn't. Oh, totally. Um, yeah, and it's not like my parents ever banned anything, but like they were really big on any sort of media having like some sort of educational purpose and for some reason i think like disney kind of slipped under the radar just because it's just like so synonymous with family entertainment yeah Mm -hmm. yeah disney's a trusted family brand yeah yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. so you're more like a pbs kid or something oh educational shows yeah yeah (laughs) i forget what conversation i was having with somebody recently but they reminded me of the adventures from the book of virtues did you watch that cartoon oh. growing up no wait was okay wait is that the one of the buffalo and the, the kids? one of the buffalo yes okay Kevin then, Michael yes, Richardson plays a buffalo that's nice oh my god and i remember my, my first show as an assistant editor like we had that actor play the character on the show and i was just like I can't edit this guy's voice like, this is so exciting <laughs> yes. oh my god I but yeah so for that reason dragon up like jake long yes yes oh but okay you did watch american dragon jake long and all those i did watch those yeah yeah i, I think i started a trend of like going like cartoons that are not strictly educational are also okay like maybe you <laughs> can watch these just for fun and i think even before I started watching Drake. It is a superhero sort of trope. And I think like as a kid, mm-hmm. you totally like to imagine like having an alter ego that's super powerful and cool. Yes. Yeah. And it leaned like right into that, especially because he was a kid too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So like, you know, in, in halfway through or whatever, they like redesigned him to be, yeah. he was like, he was like a bulkier sort of Western dragon before. And then they redesigned him to look like more like an Eastern dragon. What kind of dragon would you look like if you had an alter ego dragon? An alter ego dragon. So, man, that's tough. Would you want to be like really big and sort of buff? Or would you want to be more like a, you know, slender dragon sort of like snake through the air? 
I think I think my taste has changed because I think there was a time when I would have liked a big bulky dragon, something like a dinosaur. But mm-hmm. now, like before we started recording, we were talking about Breath of the Wild, and there's like moments in the game where these dragons will like just coast through the scene. They're just on another spiritual level from you. They don't even notice you, and like the music changes completely to like underscore this really like magical spiritual feeling. And mm-hmm. they are more like an Eastern idea of a dragon, a long snaky thing that's just like chilling mm-hmm. through the air, and not really bothering you, not stealing anybody's gold or anything, just like on a spiritual plane like above hearts <laughs> mm. i'll feel drawn to that yeah if i had to choose i would go with the serpent like aesthetic as well like especially like if it uh, had quetzal's a quaddle like like it's a quaddle yeah yeah yeah. yeah 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 that'd be dope but yeah no honestly I, I would also go with just dragging up i just think pretty much exactly what you said going ghost would be cool but fuck dude you're a fucking dragon yeah <laughs> yeah you're a fucking dragon it's so rad <laughs> What about you, Yuki Dragon, as well? Oh, I might go Ghost. You know, I know you didn't watch the show, but I thought Jamie Phantom was just no, it's a good the show. coolest. Yeah. I like it's so cool, and he had a lot of those sort of like almost anime moments where like mm. something bad, you know, something hard would happen, and then he'd just get a random power up, you know, mm, like just new yeah, powers yeah. out of nowhere. That was like really appealing to me when I was a kid. It was like <gasps> something new, like every what twenty episodes or something. Mm, yeah. <laughs> So I was really into that evolving aspect, I guess. Okay, final question. In a world lined with danger, which city would you rather live in? Republic City from The Legend of Korra or Bonesboro from The Owl House? Ooh. Okay, so Republic City, you've got to deal with like some sort of fascist, anarchist sort of threat like every other year. Mm-hmm. But I just would mm-hmm. never feel safe in Bonesboro like, as a human being without magical powers. I don't think I could power up like Luz Noceda could. Like, I feel like I'd be just stuck as a human. Um, and kind of just sitting up, sitting duck, you know? You'd just be a human in Bonesboro. <laughs> Let's say you did have magic. So okay, in Legend okay. of Korra, you, you were a bender. And then in Owl Al- House, you were a, yeah. a witch okay, so or something. Okay, so I'm a bender right? in Republic City. some magic, okay. right? Okay. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, ooh. Yeah. Like, you're probably not top-tier bender, but, like, you're, you're I'm there. not going to play pro-bending. I'm not at that level. Yeah. But, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I've got yeah, a yeah. good job mm-hmm. that pays benefits with my Yeah, you have yeah, one of those ability. jobs where you use your electricity to kind of yeah, power up the city. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of living, like, a good, honest life in Republic City. <laughs> like, yeah. I've got food from all over the four nations, you know? you got yeah. a spot for your water tribe soup. Yeah, movers just started, you know? <laughs> movers are happening. That's, I would love to. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there's there's got to be an opportunity for vendors to like apply their work in the industry of making movers. So. Yeah, yeah, SFX, I guess from man. City. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, it's it's more of that twenties twenties aesthetic vibe too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, how about yourself? Where would you would you go? Republic City or or Bonesboro? It's hard to say because I really like how crazy Bonesboro is. It just to be is really fun to imagine. I don't know, I'm not really, like, a city person in the first place, mm-hmm. I guess. So, like, Bonesboro is a city, but it's not, like, high density, you know, like, San Francisco, mm-hmm. LA kind of city. Yeah, it's a bunch of villages almost smashed together. And then there's, yeah, like, castles yeah. and stuff. But maybe I would choose that one, even though it would be uh, terribly dangerous and I might die very fast. Uh, I think it would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would do Republic City as well. I would oh. try to live at the outskirts as far as possible. Like, whatever, <laughs> like, the... The edge of Republic City is and not being mm. like where all like, you know, the triads and the cartels are. True, true. Just like where you are now. <laughs> on the edge of LA. <laughs> um, yeah, but the farthest edge of LA County as possible. As possible. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much for playing with us in between. Hopefully you had some fun, Juan. Oh yeah, hundred percent. That was great. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so let's get into this so for those that are listening we're doing this very special thing for hispanic heritage month we always highlight people of color but for hispanic heritage month we're really gonna be highlighting specifically latinx artists and bringing you more attention to these individuals and one of the ones that we have on is juan luis bravo so to kind of say again thanks so much for being on we're happy to have you yeah thanks for having me and thanks for doing this like i think that one the, the whole podcast is a great idea to you know support those voices that normally be marginalized and then to focus even deeper on hispanic heritage month that's great just really excited to be part Thank of it. Awesome. No, we're excited too. We're excited to have you. How did you get your first start in the animation industry? So I started working as a storyboard revisionist last year. It's weird to say that it starts there because as a kid, I really loved animation. As a kid, I knew what a storyboard artist was and Mm. had aspirations to work toward that. It was like 
around 2001 was like the golden age of DVD special features. Um, and that's when like, <laughs> and that's when like Pixar was becoming huge. Um, mm-hmm. And other mm-hmm. movies were introducing visual effects and animation in really exciting ways like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. And that's when I started one learning that I was really into that, but also that there are professionals that do that for a living. And I was already a really creative kid. You would be like draw all the time, write all the time. My siblings and I would like put on plays for our parents, you know, like the way a a lot of kids do Mm -hmm. and chase that in school and, you know, did like the AP art track and stuff like that. Like a lot of us did too. Mm. And thought I would go to CalArts to study character animation and then didn't get in, but got into USC's live action program. So my career took a big detour around until it was a couple of years ago, I realized that I still really wanted to work in animation. So I started loading up on classes outside of work, spending a lot of time outside of work, you know, working on the portfolio, getting portfolio reviews, going to industry events. Yeah. And it was a year ago that somebody I had met at Disney really briefly remembered me and brought me onto his crew that was hiring up for the back half of Chicken Squad season one over at Wild Canary Animation. So yeah, yeah. So Elliot Bauer remembered me, thank God. (laughs) And uh, he was a supervising director on that show. And that was my first time working as a revisionist. Yeah. And that wasn't a full season. What they had done was they'd extended the first season as opposed to like... Renewing a second. Yeah, yeah. But it was a really unique opportunity to get in on a show that wasn't going to last terribly long. I think we were only there for seven episodes. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. led to my current gig uh, where I am now at Pure Imagination. That's really cool. That's, That's glad that that person remembered you, like, you know, gave you a chance or gave you a shot. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm also assuming you, again, like you were saying, after hours, you're putting in the work in. So you had, you showed the technical ability enough to be like, yeah, let's, let's bring on Juan. Let's see what he can do. So being that experience, professionally, you didn't have a background in animation. You didn't study it. You studied live action at USC, as you mentioned. So what was the biggest kind of like learning curve or like learning experience when you were a revisionist at Wild Canary for the very first time? Yeah. And it's interesting that you point out that, you know, outside of work, I was probably putting in the work in and that was absolutely key. Like I Mm. took lectures specifically on being a storyboard revisionist so I would have like the best possible idea of what to do when I was there. Because, you know, I don't want to get there and be like, how do you do this in Storyboard Pro? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> but as far as the learning curve was concerned, you know, people tell you that speed is important. And I don't think you can mm-hmm. fully appreciate that until you are on a production. Because I've talked to people who've also made the switch from revisionist to board artist. And like the analogy I keep coming back to is like a revisionist, it's a series of sprints. And as a board artist, it's a marathon. Like as a board artist, mm-hmm. it's like, you've got this script, you got six weeks, go. Mm-hmm. And then as a revisionist, there would be days where you just heard nothing at all from your producers and you check in, like, do you have any work for me? And they'd say, no, we're waiting on notes from network. And then suddenly mm-hmm. you get a phone call and it's like, this has got to go to Disney yesterday. You got to get on this right now. Um, <laughs> like, you got to have three hours to turn this around or of oh course sometimes gosh. longer than that. So yeah, learning to appreciate how important speed was, how quickly can you understand a note? How quickly can you address a note, make changes if they're still necessary? And yeah, learning to let go of, your idea of like what a pretty drawing is. Cause again, I'd never done mm-hmm. it professionally. Like I always figured I feel like speed is going to be the hardest part for me because I'm just a mm-hmm. slow draftsman. Mm-hmm. But what I found is that when you focus on what's important, the staging, the blocking, addressing the actual note, like is the specific emotion directors asking for coming across. That's all way more important than just a pretty drawing. And that ended up being yeah. a lot more valuable. Yeah. Does this character need all the little buckles on their shirt? Right. Do right. I really need to draw like this little collar on it it's just yeah how can you break it down what are the necessary lines they need to lay Mm -hmm. to fulfill the note yeah totally that Mm -hmm. learning to simplify characters so that you you know you can tell it's that character you know you don't want to leave that level of ambiguity Mm -hmm. if anything i was really surprised how closely we would be working with the editors as revisionists it would often be like a Mm -hmm. meeting of like the the editor on that episode the director and myself and i was an assistant editor a couple years ago and i was really surprised to see that that experience was actually extremely relevant to that you know at, at a certain point It's like the entire episode is there. It's like we literally just need a handful of panels or we need a handful of shots. There's also the background in live action too, right? Like when you're in revisions, you're basically in reshoots. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the note was this whole exchange is just too complicated. Can we do it in one shot? And then being able to, as the revisionist, suggest to the director, like, why don't we make it this shot? And they're like, great, go do that. 
So I think there were a lot of experiences I'd had in the past that were surprisingly relevant to being a revisionist that I hadn't expected. That's really cool. And then like yeah. revisionist is sort of a, for a lot of people, like an entryway into being like yeah. a storyboard artist. But for you, it sounds like it really benefited you in that it got you thinking about how to be faster, how to like, you know, solve problems a little quicker. It was kind of almost a necessary step for you into becoming a storyboard artist. That's really cool that it kind of, you know, happened that way. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Yeah. Part of the reason why it's entry level is because, like I said, there's just a little less pressure. Like there's pressure to get the job done and to get it done well. But mm-hmm. but when you're a board artist, it's like the whole episode's on you uh, or at least one half of the 22 is on you. And as a revisionist, you have a chance to like take what you've learned as an aspiring board artist and apply it to a professional environment and then level up to a level where you can be a board artist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for you also, like when I was looking at your portfolio online, I noticed you did a lot, a lot of board tests, yeah. uh, which was really cool to like flip through on your, your site. Looking back on those, was that after you had done your revisionist position? That was before. Yeah, that was before. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that you would have advised yourself or you would have changed sort of doing those boards? Because you did some for a lot of like really hot properties right now, right? Like for Amphibia, for Owl House. It was uh, really interesting looking at them. And I'm like, wow, these look really good to me. I wonder, you know, maybe the other candidate was just like really hit it out of the park or something. Yeah, thank you. So I'll give some more context on those. In part of that long journey of, you know, wanting to get into boarding, I had a day job as a corporate video producer slash digital media monkey at Disney. Mm. So working for Disney Enterprise Technology, so the internal IT segment of the company. So I had an at Disney email address. I had a number of friends who were like, well, then you can totally just like hit up anybody over on the animation side, right? It wasn't necessarily that easy because especially because like, Mm -hmm. you know, there are certain segments within Disney where it's like, oh, those are the cool ones. Like everybody wants to talk to them. And among them were like, you know, (laughs) feature animation and TV animation. Like that's just cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So over the course of years, by the time that director Elliot remembered me, my skill was at a certain level. And the entire time I was like networking and building my portfolio all at the same time. So there were instances where I met somebody really great, but my skills were just not at the level necessary to start working then, you know, and, they, mm-hmm. and those people would usually be pretty gracious about giving feedback on what I needed to do next. And the unique thing that happened there was that my skill level finally matched an opportunity that turned mm-hmm. into employment. So for those tests specifically, this was a relationship that took like years to form. Like we had an intern who left our department who knew I liked animation, who was a very social person. She was really good at connecting people. Mm-hmm. She said, I made friends with the artist manager over at Disney TV Animation. Why don't you go talk to him? And so Kyle Boyd is responsible for like moving artists around internally at Disney because you know that's a studio that's so big where when one show is wrapping up, there's probably some opportunity to move them onto another show that's in production as opposed to a smaller mm-hmm. studio that only has so much at the time. So his job was to like move around talent within the studio. So he was good at being able to like pair an artist to a show style or something. So when I showed him the work I'd had to that point, he saw potential. And he was like, if you'd like, I'd love to give you some storyboard tests to work on and we can workshop them together. Like I'll essentially be your director and give you director notes so that you wow. can level this up to get to that employment ready status. And that was super, super valuable because he was giving me tests that you would give to a candidate. He was just like, please make it explicitly clear that, that this is not show production storyboards oh, or interesting. or even being a candidate for employment. Like this is just an exercise. Yeah. And as somebody who agonizes over writing, like it was just super valuable to be like, here's the script. I'm like, okay, thank God. I don't have to figure out that part. Um, <laughs> yeah. like, I, I love writing, but like it just takes me way too long to get to a story. Love it too much. I, 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 that's the problem. I love it too much. Like, yeah. And so like working with him, like one, there was like the knowing there's somebody else who's expecting to see something from me. Mm. He's willing to give me guidance. So it's not just me creating in a vacuum. He was giving, he was coaching me through like I do a roughs version and then he'd get feedback and I'd send it back and he'd give some fine tuning sort of direction. And that was also really valuable. And that one time when I asked him for feedback, he was like, you're good at taking direction. And I was like, I didn't realize we were practicing that, but we were. Yeah, with those tests, I tried to avoid watching the actual shows that they were pulled from, even though I was like fans of all the things. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, those tests were really helpful, mostly in that I was concentrating on boarding. I wasn't worrying about writing a full story. And it was a chance to try it like, you know, try things of different styles that all applied toward like, cause I knew, I also knew I wanted to work in TV animation. I knew I wanted to work on something like an Owl House or an Amphibia or Big Hero 6 mm. or something. Yeah. 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 So those were all pretty directly relevant to the sort of thing I was aiming for. 
I think with any rising board artist, if you can find a script for an old TV show and something that where you don't remember too well the way it was actually visualized, that's always a great resource. Mm-hmm. Adapting a fable or a fairy tale or a, a popular story lets you not worry as much about writing something totally original and instead focus mm-hmm. on like the storytelling, which is what you'd be doing as a board artist anyway. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. No, very true. So something else I want to kind of get into. So before breaking into animation, you actually pursued a film degree, not only studying abroad in New Zealand, but also getting your BA in film and TV production at University of Southern California. What made you originally want to pursue live action? But also, when was that exact moment where you were like, you wanted to transition into animation? Yeah, like like I said, I had ambitions to study character animation. I thought that was going to be a track for me. And then college admissions did not go the way I expected. Because like CalArts was the, the school I was obsessed with all throughout high yeah. school. And so to get rejected from there, I was like, oh, wow, this, this makes me re- really rethink things. But I got into other good mm-hmm. universities. And in retrospect, I'm so glad I went to just like a straight university and not specifically an art school to get like that mm-hmm. arts education, but also get like that full university education was really something mm-hmm. I'm really, really grateful for. And, and I think the reason I didn't have trouble switching over to live action is because I am a lot more interested in filmmaking than I am specifically drawing or animation or anything like that. I was just like, I just want to tell stories. I like movies and Mm -hmm. television. And as long as I'm doing that, I feel like I'll be happy. And I saw it as an opportunity to learn something different than what I had before. And the experience of going to USC and going to the film school there was dramatically different than anything I'd done before. Like, I, you know, I'd mm-hmm. messed around with like a mini DV camera at home, but that was very different from like, you know, shooting something with a cinema camera and working with actors is something totally different. You know, in boarding, it's like, oh, I'll just draw them over here. And then yeah. the actor's like, you yeah. got to give them a mark and you got to give them a reason to go over there. And, and that actually has been really informative for me as a board artist, like to think about what would I tell the actor to get them to the moment the script is kind of calling for and to think more about like motivation than I just want to draw them over here because it's cooler. Yeah. Yeah. So th- that experience is super valuable. I would actually say I think it was super beneficial as well because like normally you would think when you don't have a background in animation trying to break into animation, you would be kind of at a disadvantage. I think besides maybe the draftsmanship and the drawing wise, you were probably slightly at a disadvantage. But with all the knowledge and film that you kind of had going in, and you mentioned it before how a lot of stuff that you did in live action or your old job really kind of tied into what you were doing in Envision, tied into like how you think when you're drawing and boarding. I think it was like actually kind of put you at an advantage. For example, if you went to school for animation, if you did end up going, part of the thing that you would like learn is like study film, study mm-hmm. live action. Yep. Like yep. that's what that's what we pull from, and you were already doing that, so you already know how to do that. Your your whole education was like live action and film, so you didn't have to restudy it while also trying to do animation simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I think that was awesome. The fact that you had that put you at an advantage when normally it wouldn't be the case, you know. Totally. Yeah. It was like, kind of like you said, we're going to focus on the filmmaking right now. You're going to learn about lens lengths. You're going to learn what, how, what the effect that has on the image. Mm. Granted, I, I've not had an animation education, so I couldn't really compare. But one thing I'm really grateful for is that my education involved screenwriting. It involved mm-hmm. cinematography. Mm-hmm. It involved lighting. It involved blocking with actors. It involved working with actors. It involved sound design, sound mixing. To like get to sound mix on a really big stage at the USC Sound Lab was like really really cool. Um, mm. And it put you in the mindset of being like an end to end filmmaker, like thinking about every tool at your disposal. Like it, it's something I've had to be aware of. Like sometimes in my boards, I'm like, oh, there'll be a sound cue, but like you really want a visual cue when you're boarding because it looks incomplete mm. otherwise. But yeah, it, it was really nice to have that opportunity to just focus on the filmmaking and then later mm. um, focus on the draftsmanship and the drawing and the storyboarding. Yeah, eventually you did start yeah. taking like animation classes though, because I think like on your resume I saw that you did uh, American Animation Institute and then Concept Design Academy. So yeah. you did end up getting some kind of education. Yeah, uh, and, and you asked, was there like a moment when I wanted to switch over to animation? So like I left school, I did video production for D23, the official Disney fan club. I was mm. working as, as an assistant editor for a bunch of the Marvel animation cartoons. So like the animated nice. Avengers that's Assemble, <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy. That was really fun. That was really fun to like work with those characters. Mm. And that, that's when I was like, you know, uh, Kevin Michael Richardson played Groot on the Guardians of the Galaxy <laughs> cartoon. And just because I yes. loved the Book of Virtues as a kid, I was like, this is this guy's voice. And he's <laughs> saying, I'm Groot. That was all great. That was all... I was like, this is a career in entertainment. But I just felt like I wasn't getting to apply what I really loved to my work. 
I left the assistant editor job and got another that, that, that corporate video job at Disney. And again, I was just like, I'm not applying what I like about filmmaking to my work. And it's frustrating, you know, without a family to take care of. I had like the luxury to just go like, I'm going to study some more. So that's when I started at the American Animation Institute, which is the educational institution within the Animation Guild here in Burbank. Oh, okay, and so, okay. Yeah. So they do classes on the evenings and weekends that are open to guild members and non-guild members. The people teaching there are typically people who have been in the industry a while and so that was like at first it was like figure drawing classes like get, literally getting back into okay how do i draw because i have not actually done yeah. this seriously yeah. in a long time and then concept design academy like you said it was hyper focused and i was really really grateful for that it was like we are going to learn to storyboard that is what we're focusing here we obviously you need to touch the other disciplines like you need to be aware of character design you need to be aware of prop design you need to be aware of background design but it was hyper focused on can you turn around a board that is production ready. Um, Alan Wan was the one who taught the class I took at CDA, and he's incredible. And that experience was super great because it was it was again going back to like the directing experience where <laughs> he would like draw on top of your boards, and he would have his storyboard pro window up on the monitor for the entire class, and you saw what he was doing. And on some level, you learn like the cool tips and tricks, but you also saw him like execute an idea he was talking about in seconds. Right. And you're just like, mm-hmm. oh, I would love to draw that well that fast. <laughs> one day. <laughs> I'm not there yet. <laughs> but uh, he was great about like communicating what was missing in a board. So yeah, that, that was all kind of triggered by like, like I said, I wasn't really feeling like I was getting to apply what I liked about filmmaking to my work. Mm-hmm. And when I looked back at animation, specifically animation storyboarding, I was like, there's a reason I liked it as a kid. It's like, I like getting to have a little bit of a taste of everything, like getting to be a cinematographer and an actor and an animator and getting to touch all those things at once. And and on top of that, there was also the ambiguity of live action was something that was really confusing to me. Mm -hmm. I think that like for a, a more outgoing personality, it might have been different. For me, I really liked showing up and doing my job and mm-hmm. working my way up that way. And I saw more of an opportunity for that in animation. And so that's what made me go to take class at the Guild and later at CDA, because I thought this is where I see a good opportunity for the, the kind of way I want to work right. mm-hmm. and the ambitions I have in filmmaking. I think that's really cool. So like you were talking about how as a director in live action film, you would be giving directions to actors and then they would be like, you know, what's my motivation? Which is sort of a <laughs> the, um, <laughs> cliche actor, cliche thing. actor yeah, yeah. thing. But it's it's so true, right? Like in animation, you can make them do whatever you want. But in live action, if you have to be like constrained to what the actor can do, what they can bring to the table, I think that makes you think a little bit deeper about why am I doing this yeah, angle? Why are yeah. they moving here? What are mm-hmm. they going to do when they move from A to B? Watching people who are good at what they do, yeah. it just makes sense, right? Watching actors mm-hmm. absorbing that and then bringing that into your board work. I think that's really cool because before you had mentioned that at the time when you were studying live action, I guess you were saying, you know, like, what am I doing? Am I, you know, wasting time doing this? But it, it all ended up being for your benefit and like largely so, I would say. Not even just like, oh, that was kind of a thing I did that was like a little bit helpful. I think that's really like a great experience that you had yeah and i'd say that that period of like i think i called it anguish was like um, (laughs) it it was more like specifically the time like it was a while it was Mm -hmm. no joke like i consider like the official start of getting serious about animation to be when i enrolled a class at the animation guild that was 2016 i didn't break in until 2020 so that entire time Mm -hmm. i was doing the job at disney and training that's four years. That's mm. a whole undergrad degree. That's a lot. Yeah. And that was the challenge. It was just like, oh my God, this is taking forever. Is this ever yeah. going to happen? Mm. And then to put it in retrospect as well, like what year did you graduate from like USC? That was 2014. So it was like, okay. So, so it was like, well, yeah, two so years after graduating from years. school, I was like, yeah. okay, yeah. time to go get another degree. <laughs> yeah. But like, again, but it just also goes to show that like, if you put in the work, especially because you put in yeah. the work after hours, you were also, mm. what you were also doing really benefited you as well. It, like, yeah, it took eight years for you to break in from graduation or like four years to do it from when you started taking this American Institute class, but you broke in. Yeah. Yeah. And just putting in the time, putting the effort and like, it doesn't happen as fast for everybody. Not everybody has the same kind of track, but totally, like, totally, totally. You're here and then quickly to, to kind of like, you know, bring it into like what you're doing now. Not soon after you had your first revisionist position at Wild Canary, you're currently now a board artist at Pure Imagination Studios for like an unannounced project. Like, how crazy is that? How was that transition from you from shifting to revisionist to a board artist? Like in a span of like a, was it a year or like less than a year? Like it was 
Less than a year, yeah, yeah. It yeah, was like it was my next gig. Like I, I was when the chicken squad job ended. I was like, okay, I got to be prepared to un- be unemployed for six months. God knows when the next thing's gonna be. Um, and, and for <laughs> for my internal career planning, I was thinking, okay, I've got to be a revisionist for like another couple of years because I was talking to a lot of my friends and they were saying, yeah, and God, like that job really did change everything because suddenly I had peers who were like in my field because like before that was yeah. like my friends who graduated mm-hmm. in live action who are doing really different things. Mm-hmm. People I knew who had similar ambitions in animation and suddenly i had like co-workers who were in it who i could like speak to as like yeah i'm on your team now like it, it really changed the dynamic in a lot of ways totally mm-hmm. yeah in terms of making that switch like you said it, it's funny that it happened after such a long period of stagnation because like i don't i feel like a, animation draws a lot of gifted kids you know like the kids who were like good in school or naturally talented and are good at like mm-hmm. chasing their dreams and making them come true and i'm, I'm so i so i identified with that for a long time and then i started thinking more about it's kind of like you like you were saying right like having like the discipline to stick with it when it's not immediately working out mm-hmm. like i just imagine myself like banging my head against the wall and it like one day it finally cracks <laughs> you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like i started applying the, the attitude of like i'm just too stupid to quit that's my secret to success <laughs> it's like i should have quit a long time ago and, and even with that gig, what happened was my line producer on Chicken Squad had moved over to this other studio, Pure Imagination. And I did not realize that he had moved until after I had applied. Oh. And then his name was on the email list for the interview for the new job. And I was like, oh, Peter left this show for this show. So, and he was in the interview for the storyboard job. And I have to imagine that me being the annoying little revisionist, like, hey, can I help? Hey, can I help? Hey, can I help? Okay, you got a job for me. I'll get it done. Turn it around for you as quick as I can, boss. Like, I have mm-hmm. to imagine that that and the other really exciting thing about that was that the supervising director who hired me, he specifically called out the work I'd done on my own time on my portfolio. Mm-hmm. So it was like that combination of like, this guy saw what I was doing professionally. This other guy saw the work I was putting in on my own time. And they made that decision like, okay, this guy's ready to make the jump to boarding, which has been like a big learning curve. I'm not going to lie. It's been challenging because like the amount of work that you have to do is just, it's a lot. It's a different ball game, man. Dude, Entirely yeah. different ball game. I, I'm, I'm so curious to hear what your switch was like. But like on, <laughs> on, my, on my end, it was like, wow, like suddenly I'm on a show that is like, it's an action adventure show. So there's action adventure scenes to do that involve a lot of blocking. Our, mm-hmm. car- our show revolves around a team. So you've got five or six characters in a, in a scene at a time. It's also a season one show. So a lot of the artwork is being developed at the same time as you're drawing it. Because like I said, on Chicken Squad, by the time I got there, it was a pretty well-oiled machine by the time I got there. Mm. In many cases, I'd have like 3D models to look at and reference. And on this show, that stuff's getting developed. Like I'll get a 3D model for a set. And then a few weeks later, it's like, oh, here's the updated one. Or in many cases, there is that work hasn't been done yet. It's like, and here's all the development art that you'll reference as best you can. Simply put, it's like I talked about earlier, there's the challenge of like, here's a full episode script that it's a 22 minute show that I split with a board partner. Yeah. Because I had not worked that directly with the script before. Because when you're in revisions, it's kind of like, what I love about Chicken Squad is that we had the story editor in our review session. So they she was there to remind us like, okay, this was the script intent. If it's not working the way it was scripted, that's fine. But we need to make sure this story need is being addressed. Mm. And right now, it's like, I'm in the first pass. I'm the one working directly with the script and doing the first interpretation of what it can be. And then, of course, working with the director because the director has a vision for it. Mm -hmm. Mm. And because it's a new show, I don't have animatics to look at like I did with Chickens, where I could watch several episodes and be like, oh, I I think I know what the show is. Here it's like... No, that's your job. You're figuring out what the show yeah. is. <laughs> no, that's the challenge. Something it's super interesting that you're doing now. You're currently Webby Animation storyboard mentor. How did you get involved in that? How was maybe briefly explain for like the listeners what it is that you're going to be doing with that? Yeah, uh, Women in Animation is an organization that is devoted to building up representation of female identifying people in the animation industry. And so they do that with a lot of different things. There is one-on-one mentorship that they do. They back in the before times they would host in-person mixers for people to <laughs> who are like trying to get into animation <laughs> yeah. or in working professionals. They would do like informative panels. 
panels where I remember like one of my favorite ones was they had a bunch of people who worked in post-production and animation do a lecture mm-hmm. at um, Disney Feature Animation in Burbank, followed by a mixer where you could like interact with people and talk to them. They do a lot mm-hmm. of great virtual stuff and they're all over. There's a chapter in the Bay Area. I'm obviously involved with the one in LA, New York as well. And then there's another organization called Latinx and Animation that mm-hmm. I'm a member mm-hmm. of. And their goal is similar with respect to Latinx artists um, and getting more representation for them within the industry. And not long ago, they had partnered with Women in Animation along with Black and Animated and Animations, which are other great organizations that people should get involved with and learn about because uh, they're yeah. great educational tools. In partnership with WIA, they were looking for mentors to join on with their virtual mentorship circles that they were going to do almost like on a semester basis every couple of months. Uh, and they mm-hmm. were looking for people who'd be interested in hosting one and i'm really big on like and we, we talked about it like nurturing teams like yeah or like having somebody coach you that makes all the difference in the world because okay. you can like work in isolation and that does get you a lot of the way but to have somebody who's been there before to guide you is really 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 important yeah and i really like the idea of getting the opportunity to do that so i responded to the call for mentors and kind of like your goal with the podcast where you're going for people who are like just getting their start mm. as people who broke in not long ago we have a pretty unique perspective in that we were, we were just there and we'd probably be good voices to help guide people who are listening in this case, your podcast in that case, the manager circle. So, so I pitched, mm-hmm. like, I just want to concentrate on those people who are just, just about ready to get a break in a yeah. little less on mm-hmm. like the craft. And then, of course we want to cover craft because that's important, but craft in the way where it's like the difference between this is a wide shot. This is a close up and let's get your boards to production ready status, like make that difference right. so you can actually get employed. Like that's what I wanted to mm-hmm. concentrate on along with like yeah. tailoring your portfolio and job applications, things like that. And they were really excited by it. Storyboarding is always like a popular sort of subject for the mentorship circles I do. Yeah. Like they, the website <laughs> yeah. is broken several times. So how many people are With how many applying? people are applying. Yeah. yeah. Like so, th- yeah. so they had like a whole week that was just like, if you want to apply for storyboarding, just apply this week. <laughs> so yeah, I'm working on the curriculum for that and what I hope to cover mm-hmm. and hopefully it's, it's kind of like what you're doing here speaking as artists who are working professionally fairly recently what guidance mm-hmm. can we give to those artists who are trying to break in as well yeah and especially with right. our perspective as like bipoc artists speaking to other marginalized groups yeah that, that, that's i'm really really excited to, to get started with that that's honestly super amazing Hopefully those that are in your workshop, the students that you end up getting, hopefully they get a lot out of it. And hopefully they find it really beneficial because I think it sounds amazing. Yeah, I think that's really wonderful. great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope mm-hmm. so. Thank you. Thank you. I, I hope so as well. <laughs> <laughs> While we're on the topic of BIPOC, also kind of being Hispanic Heritage Month and how we're trying to like, you know, spotlight specifically Latinx voices. How does kind of your background as a Mexican-American play a role in the stories that you want to tell and also as your identity as an artist? Right. It's like it's like entangled with everything. Right. It's it's, it's mm-hmm. as much a part of me as being a cisgender straight dude. It's as much a part of me as like the fact that I grew up in Northern California to Mexican immigrants. Like all of that is a part of me and it all informs what I do. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, like, like, I, like I mentioned growing up and such, like my parents were really big on like educational programming because they were big on education, period. Like they were mm-hmm. like they always figure like education is how we're going to make sure our family is thriving in the future. Mm hmm. Because my parents were both people who, you know, when they were growing up in Mexico, they were you know, made to work earlier in life. Yeah, my dad got his first job at the age of 13. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Sim- similar for my dad. He was like, he had a dishwashing job when he was probably a similar age. Mm-hmm. And, and my dad later did go on to get a professional education. But uh, they were all big on like, we're going to make sure the kids all have our focus on that when they're small. And we're prepping them to get a good education later in life. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, that, that's as much about being Mexican American as the food we ate, you know, like that working class immigrant attitude. <laughs> it's funny, actually, like for my desk that I use for work is the same Mm -hmm. one that my dad used when he was studying to get his engineering license to practice engineering in the United States because he had one to practice in Mexico, but had to like do some more schooling to do it. Yeah. And that's the desk that I use now. It's a nice like reminder, like sometimes it's just a grind. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you just got to be disciplined and work hard. I don't know if you've experienced this where like a friend looks at your art and they tell you what you're interested in and you're like, oh, I didn't realize I was interested in that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, that has happened. Sometimes eye opening, like what other people can see that you don't. Yeah. 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 I, I'm curious, like what's it been for you guys? A lot of father stuff, a lot of mm-hmm. like parental mm-hmm. things as like a through line in like my stuff. Interesting. Huh? And luchadors. <laughs> <laughs> But 
stripping away the visuals, like, yeah, I, it's, it's a lot of action and it's a lot of parental things. It's mm. like what seems to be the through line in my stuff. I have heard of that before where people are like, oh, like you seem to draw a lot of, you know, the same sort of theme or the same sort of motif or something. And it's like, mm. oh, mm. do I? Oh, I guess I do. <laughs> I become self-conscious about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like your stuff. I think like you're you're really into creatures. You like making like these like cool, like little like alien or like monster looking <laughs> things, but like they're always cute. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And, like I remember in film school, again, we're doing like live action films, like mm-hmm. specifically the second year production class at USC. I don't think it exists in this form anymore. But the whole deal with that class was that in 15 weeks, you were going to make five short films. And in each case, mm. you had one week to write, one week to produce and one week to edit. So it was more just like go through the motions as quickly as you can. And at the end of it, you have like, and the last one is a collaboration. By the end of it, you've had four short films that you did yourself. And I remember one of my best friends told me like, oh, you do buddy comedies a lot. And, <laughs> oh, wow. and I was like, nice, nice. and it's not like, like, if you ask me my favorite movies, I'm not, I'm not likely to name a bunch of buddy comedies. Really? No rush hour for you? <laughs> I, 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 don't get me wrong. I love me some rush hour. But, uh, <laughs> but like, I, w- I wouldn't think like that's the, oh yeah, that's my thing. That's what I want to do. I'm going to, I'm moving to LA to make buddy comedies. Like I never yeah. would have thought of that. <laughs> but when I thought more about it, I was just like, that's just something I'm naturally interested in. People who come mm. from different worlds who don't understand each other, who have to learn to understand each other. Mm. And I think that mm. is definitely definitely like the Mexican immigrant growing up in a mostly when we first got to the United States, we lived in a mostly black and Latino neighborhood. And then mm-hmm. as things are working out for my parents, we moved into a neighborhood that was mostly white. Mm-hmm. Like, and I didn't realize it was a culture clash until later. Like, I don't think at the time I was like, ah, I'm experiencing culture clash. It's cool. But yeah. uh, mm-hmm. something that I'm generally fascinated with is people who come from different worlds who have to learn to understand each other. And I think that is embedded in the work that I still do now. And it's definitely something I'm like aware of with the stuff that I'm working on for the future too. Yeah, that's great. And again, it's good that you were able, someone pointed that to you, but then you were able to also dissect even further of like why it is that you yeah, do buddy cops. Yeah. Kind of something I kind of want to get into because um, I want to know how you kind of feel about it is that again, being Mexican American, being Latinx, you're like on its opinion, like, how many of us do you actually see in, in your workspace? Yeah. Are, like, are you asking me on my team right now? Because it's I like... mean, you, you can say it now, but like, I'll be a little honest, like, because I got to intern at Tonko, I got to intern at Pixar, and being at Warner Brothers right now is that like a lot of the time I was always kind of like the only Hispanic in the room. Totally. Or the only, you know, Mexican in the room. And it's kind of like, it's one of those things where like, uh, I don't know how you, you feel about this because we had a great episode with Monse. Monte like made a great point where like when you're the only like you know person I'm calling in the room you kind of have to represent yeah you know the people because you want to show that your people are great to work with your people are hireable mm-hmm. your, your people can do the work and so like oftentimes I feel like I never get to just be like a normal person I feel like yeah. I'm like I feel yeah. like oftentimes I always gotta like represent my culture do you do you feel like in a similar way when right now are you the only Hispanic or Latinx person on your crew and if so do you feel like that need to constantly represent yeah that that's tough right because like. I feel like it's the sort of thing where I'm pretty good at forgetting it until something happens. And I'm like, oh, everyone in the room looks at me as the Latino in the room. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that then that really, and I'm not saying that's happened on my current job, but it's happened a lot. And that sucks, mm-hmm. right? Like, because mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm here as a person and then something will happen and you're like, oh, I'm here as specifically this person. Like, I remember one time in school, like in a screenwriting class, I forget what the assignment was, but I think it was just to write something personal. And I wrote the main character had the last name Garcia. That was it. The character was introduced as something Garcia. And Mm -hmm. someone commented, ooh, it's a special issues movie. And I'm like, this is about a kid saying goodbye to his childhood when he goes to college. He still has the right to go on that journey like any human being gets to. But suddenly, and I took away the wrong lesson from that at the time. I was so like, young and it's and, and i also love how this conversation has changed a lot just in the last 10 years because this was i want to say this was roughly 2012 when i was like halfway mm. through undergrad wow. and because mm-hmm. the thing i took away was oh no i shouldn't talk about this because then everyone's gonna like concentrate on that and i'm here to be a filmmaker and not to make a special issues thing it was just so frustrating to mm-hmm. hear that just by being my authentic self mm. that suddenly there is like an image you push on that that other yeah. people push on it I think I kind of caved to the pressure of wanting to represent everybody by not doing that for a while. Right. Mm-hmm. Like like Jorge Gutierrez has talked about this a lot, how like when you do a, a Latino character, 
suddenly that character has to be good because they have to represent everybody. And it's like, mm-hmm. no one else feels the pressure. Like Walter White mm-hmm. is the worst human being on television. And we all laud him for being this incredibly complex and compelling character. Yeah. But he gets the room to do that because there's plenty of like, you get to appreciate the complexity of people when there's a yeah. lot of representation. And when there isn't, mm-hmm. you deal with this really frustrating thing where any character of a specific background has to represent everybody. And there's no way they can represent everybody. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's a backlash even from within the community because it's like, well, that's not me. Like in, in my family, there's been arguments about certain Mexican celebrities and the way they represent people. I now take the attitude of like, I can't judge them because they are being honest to who they are. Yeah. The problem <laughs> is when other people take that image and put it on me in a way that's not fair because it's like, okay, that person and me are come from completely different worlds. We're both Mexican American. Sure. But that means something very different for the both of us. Mm -hmm. Like you say, like when you're on a team, you feel very self-conscious about coming up short on anything. Like, like I said, this job has been a learning curve. Like I wish I could say I knocked it out of the park on my first couple boards, but like there were points where I needed to go back and rework some stuff. And I certainly didn't want to give any sort of impression that this is a reflection on people like me, you know, rather I hope it comes across as like, Oh yeah, this guy just made the jump from revisions to board artists. Of course there's going to be like some stumbles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like on this team, at least in the time I've been working as an animation professional, I haven't seen a lot of representation in the time that I was certainly in the world of corporate video. I also saw some pretty, like, in retrospect, some pretty explicit, like, bigotry and racism, Uh, even worse than just a simple lack of representation. Like, people going like, why do we even need to talk about this? Why is this? I don't understand why I have to take time out of my day to hear about why representation is important. You know, like, that's something I saw Uh, in the corporate world. uh, So, uh, yeah. Because it doesn't affect you. That's why. It doesn't affect you. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, you're comfortable with the status quo. So why why change, Mm -hmm. right? Like, that's... Mm -hmm. And so it really sucks when it feels like there's some pressure that you have to be that agent of change Mm -hmm. because we're also just trying to live our lives and trying to navigate our own careers. Like we have our ambitions as artists and as professionals. Mm -hmm. That's part of why I was interested in doing something like mentorship with women in animation is to be in a position where I certainly feel a little bit more comfortable and stable in my career. I think young artists would benefit from just hearing that legitimized. Like, you know, it's not in your head. There are a lot of there are forces that are working against you. That doesn't mean those forces can't be overcome on some level. Mm, Totally. That's very well put. And then to kind of like look forward and look onward into the future, what kind of future aspirations do you have for yourself in this kind of industry? I know I really hope to do more of that sort of thing with respect to like mentorship and building people up. Like, you know, like like that's great. I love that. Yeah, like 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 that director who looked out for me. I'm like, I want to do that one day. I'm not in a position mm-hmm. of power like that yet, but I can pass on. Like, here's what little I've learned. Let me pass it on. Like, I'd like to mm-hmm. at least do that for now. Totally. Um, that's and, great. and like those those are the artists I admire. Like Ava DuVernay is someone I idolize. And that's something that I think what I love about her is not just her art, but just the extent to which she's so insistent on giving opportunity back to people who are also on the way up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. with respect to future ambitions. I I mentioned that I love writing and I would love to like meld that in and, you know, write and direct stuff of my own someday, whether it's personal projects or maybe one day professionally, that's something I'm aiming for that I'd like to do. Certainly right now I want to like stay focused on the work in front of me as a storyboard artist, but Mm -hmm. to take that and learn how to be a better director, a better writer, and to one day have projects that I can lead the way in that way, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's very much a possibility. I think you have the right mindset, the right attitude, and just like the way you've been kind of taking life and the way we approach things, I think you've been doing a very excellent job at it. I'm glad that we got to kind of meet you through doing this podcast because yeah, I'm excited thanks. for what you're going to do in the future. Likewise, yeah, y'all, y'all are going places. Y'all are going oh. places. Like, and I, I'm so, I mean, even this podcast, I'm like, I'm so curious how, like, I, I feel like this has, like, <laughs> potential. Like, I don't know about you, but I remember, like, I mentioned, like, the golden age of DVD special features and such and how much I learned from that. Like, that, I think I consider that my first film school because that's what I learned, like, what a shot is, you know? Nobody teaches mm-hmm. you what a shot is when you're 12 years old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also remember, like, the animation podcast when Clay Cadis was doing that. Mm. And that was based on, like, a certain kind of professional, like, the kind of person who'd been at disney for a couple decades but like to right. do what you're doing now it's like we just got in here's what we learned and you can access this information for free yeah yeah that's powerful that's really really powerful yeah i mean this industry is changing so fast like 
every time we speak to a guest, like something I learned something new, mm-hmm. and it's kind of incredible that I guess we are doing this to, <laughs> to look back on stuff. But it's kind of a fun opportunity to give people a platform, not only for BIPOC voices to like speak up and say, you know, their experience, but like I tell people this a lot, like like my underclassmen and stuff who ask me for advice. I'm like, just reach out to anybody mm. in the industry because it is such a difficult industry to enter in the first place. I mean, you eight years <laughs> pursuing um, <laughs> getting in in your first break. And it's so difficult that once people get in, they're like, I did it. Like, everybody, listen, I did it. This is how I did it. It was the, the wildest ride. And it always is. And I don't know. I love hearing people's stories about how they broke in. And hopefully our listeners do, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get into the final question, where can our audience find you? And is there anything else you want to plug at this time? All my social handles are on JuanLeesBravo.com. There is at JuanLeesBravo underscore on Instagram and Twitter. And that's generally where I'm most active, which is not to say I'm terribly active at all. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, people that want to connect or, or send questions, like by all means, that's where they can find me. So wait, you weren't able to get Juan Luis Bravo? There's an underscore at the end? Not not for Instagram. <laughs> I've looked at the Juan the at Juan Luis Bravo without the underscore on Instagram and Twitter and I'm like, but I'm, I'm not about to I'm grateful I got JuanLuisBravo.com. Like I'm like, I'll take okay. that. Like I'll, good, good. <laughs> yeah, that that's more important. For sure. that's, yeah. <laughs> the nice thing about doing the underscore at the end is like generally uh when people search my name, my result will still come up at the top because there's like enough of like a follower count and like mm-hmm. back history that it shows up above like some private person who lives in Spain or something. Yeah. <laughs> <One least problem. laughs> All right. So as we come to a close, what advice do you want to bestow on those that want to pursue a career in animation? Remind yourself what is in your control and what is out of your control. Like getting a job, getting a lot of praise, a high follower count on social media or something, that's stuff that is out of your control. But, you know, the portfolio, the work, the discipline, like that is stuff that is in your control. And like there's so many resources that are available, like this podcast that we're on right now. Animation has never been more open than it is right now in terms of the knowledge. No, for real. I, yeah, I wish I had all this knowledge and all these open resources yeah. when I was in high school. Like, the internet has exploded so much since eight or nine years ago. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, I remember last year when the pandemic hit and Netflix Animation hosted like a whole week of webinars. Like, we're just going to talk to you directly for free about how we do stuff. Um, mm-hmm. That's something I've never seen a studio do before. And then, of course, a lot of the studios started playing catch up and like, oh, I guess we got to do free webinars now. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there's no reason for animation to be as close as it is. Like, the, the mm-hmm. software that artists use is fairly accessible. There are open source free alternatives for generally all of them. Yeah, the, the, the information's out there. And I, I would always start there. Just start with the research. You'll be shocked just how much you can learn just by a simple Google search. You can find interviews with people you admire. That's something I generally do at work whenever I'm drawing is like, and this goes back to middle school, like just having the animation podcast playing in the background while drawing and just to hear directly from artists you admire, especially right now during the pandemic, like that's never been more available, never been more valuable. You can learn a lot about the tools that artists use. And those are all things that you can control on some level. And when you concentrate there, you'll find yourself leveling up because like like I said, there were, there were times when I talked to a really great professional who was super generous with their time and my skills just weren't ready yet you know they just weren't ready yet Mm -hmm. and until one day they were um so you kind of got to keep doing both like work on your developing your craft growing networking where possible and there's a whole other podcast you can do about networking um like making up making authentic connections let's let's rephrase it Mm -hmm. that way it, like I said, it took me a number of years of trying. And it was always an option to decide, I don't want to keep doing this. This is taking up too much time. But I was like, I'm, I'm willing to give it a shot. I'm willing to give this a couple of years, years of, you know, sustained discipline and networking and meeting people and learning what I could. And I think I was only able to st- sustain it because I let go of like, I need to get a job by X date. I need to get this, you know, level of validation or something like focusing on what I had control over, mm-hmm. which was, yeah, like waking up early for my morning drawing sprint before work, doing a little bit after work when I get home, listening to interviews where possible and knowing that that was enough and that the rest of it was something that would come or wouldn't come outside of my control. You'd be surprised how empowering it is to see what you really have at your disposal when you stop to think about it. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. 
Well, excellent. If you enjoyed our interview with Juan today, please rate us and follow us on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StraightAheadAP. And if you have any suggestions for guests, please contact us on social media and send us an email at straightaheadpodcast at gmail.com. We love discovering new professionals and want to use this platform to boost these voices of the future. Thank you to Ashley Itliong for editing this episode. And finally, a big thanks to our music composer, Daniel Rodier. Thanks again for listening. And thank you once again to our guest, who has a bright future straight ahead. Until next week, have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye. Bye, y'all.